Hi, I'm Reagan, and thanks for listening to my dad's podcast, Lasting Learning. Hi, this is Dave Schmidow, the host of the Lasting Learning Podcast. On this show, we talk to real people with real stories. We focus on the focus and discuss what matters most. Let's go. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Hey, everybody. I hope that you enjoy this upcoming episode. It was an absolute blast to record. I apologize in advance about the sound quality. Lots of issues going on with internet connectivity and all the things, but I hope you get the gist. The guest is spot on. The guest is spectacular. So sit back, enjoy, relax, learn, and grow. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. I am so glad you're here. This week, we have a a pretty impressive guest on the show with us. We got a guy here who is living a life on the Pacific Northwest, but changing the world. He's not hiding from anybody. He's out there disrupting the norms, disrupting the status quo, and helping us get education to where it needs to be and where it should be. Not by poking the bear, but by leaning in, focusing in on trust, focusing on relationships, focusing on transparency and vulnerability. We got a guy here who has written a book. He is traveling and speaking and sharing his message with people everywhere. And today, he's here to share with you. I am so honored and so excited to have Craig Randall joining us on the Lasting Learning Podcast. Craig, thank you so much for being here. Dave, thanks so much for having me. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be on your show. No, this is, this is fun. I'm excited about this. Ever since it was scheduled, I've been, I told you before we went live, I've just been diving into your stuff. You speak my language. You are saying all the things that I wish I could say as articulately as you do. So I, I'm excited. I just want you to preach a little bit today and, and drop some truth on, on the world. So before we get to that, though, can you unpack your history a little bit for us? Tell, tell people who you are, what you're about, what got you to this moment. Sure. Uh, So I've been in education since the early 90s and in one form or another, but I'd say it's been pretty a pretty eclectic career path. I started out as an elementary school counselor. Actually, I didn't even think about this before, but I started actually as an ed assistant while I was doing that, but uh, or paraeducator, whatever term we want to use, but started as an elementary school counselor in Washington State. Did that for seven or eight years. I had one year, the very last year I did it, I actually was working in a middle school in a classroom with all behavior, dis- severe behavior disabled students. I think they've changed the terminology now, but anyway, they were all, but one of them had been previously adjudicated. They were all boys. And I had another about nine of them in the class, 180 school days. I had to restrain 180 days physical restraint so that was pretty crazy but along the way it was a great experience though working with those kids exhausting but great along the way I coached as many of us do when we're uh, when we're in education and uh, I would do summer camps and an opportunity 
through a college coach that I met came to take a major detour. And so I moved into college basketball coaching for seven years, small college basketball uh, at the division three and junior college level. And uh, that was fantastic. Ultimately, there was something missing though on that fulfillment level. And my wife and I were just talking one day and we'd always talked about going overseas and working at international schools. And we were approaching 40 at that point in time and thought now or never. And so we signed up for an international school job fair and went to freezing cold Iowa in the end of January. And it's an amazing experience because you go to these fairs and you could end up within three days time in any one of four different continents that aren't your own continent. And uh, so we took jobs in uh, Poland, in Warsaw, the American School of Warsaw. And so I began teaching there. And when my wife and our kids came along, yes, they would, I guess. And uh, so we did that. And then as we were doing that, I had a principal there say, great, you ought to go into admin. So I started in the summers and online doing my principal certification course. And uh, that's where I met my mentor. But I think I'll talk about that a little bit later. And then moved into becoming an assistant principal in Korea and then a principal. And then a couple of years ago, we came back home and internationally, you get to save some money. And so we had enough money where we could live on one salary tightly. And my, I have a really great wife. And so she let me work on the book and it just came out in September. Wow. I feel like there's so much in that story that I want to dive into. I'm going to try my best not to take all these rabbit trails and just squirrel myself away, but I'm fascinated by so much of what you said. Going back to your classroom of nine boys and yeah. 180 days of physical restraints, I think yeah. there are some parts of the country that don't understand what that's like. Um, yeah. I, I had the opportunity to work in a school where we had a similar situation. We had a self-contained, it, it, where I was, it was EBD, emotional behavior, disability yeah, yeah, classroom. Um, basically, students that struggle with regulations, um, severe anger, anxiety, um, and we're talking tables being flipped and physical violence on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I can only imagine that you did not walk into the role of education thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to go into <laughs> physically restraining kids every single day of my career. What does that do to somebody's psyche when, when that is your reality as a professional every single day? <laughs> it's definitely draining. And on the weekends, you really felt like, in terms of need, like Maslow's need, rest was needed and getting away was needed. But at the same time, I mean, look, in these kind of situations, almost every kid came from a family where they were acting out some things that were happening at home, right? They came from yeah. severely dysfunctional situations at home. And, and of course, for whatever reasons, they push people away because that's safer than letting them in. And so they'll do, you know, F this, F that, and all that to try and get a reaction out of you so you won't like them. But when you know that and you don't react to that or don't react to that in the way they want to, and, and, and you see the kids and they're, they're still middle schoolers. Like you still see the vulnerability. They might, they might be more streetwise, but they're still sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And you have times when you see them and you get to know them and you, like everything else, you just do what you can in that time to try and make a difference and an impact on them. And fairly regularly, I think back at those kids who are now young men in their thirties and, and I wonder how they're doing and I hope they're doing okay, but I don't know what to say other than that. 
Yeah. Was that a, was that a job that you sought out or was it presented to you? Because I, I heard this theme <laughs> in your in your story that it's almost like you you fell into opportunities. Sometimes mm. people would say you fell into obstacles as well, but it seems like opportunities kind of presented themselves to you. Was this one of those situations? Uh, out I mean, to find a job. I mean, I had the job and I didn't lose a job, but I was looking for something. I don't know. I mean, if you have a growth mindset, right? Like after a while, the same doesn't fulfill yeah. in the same way anymore. And so there's something new. And so I saw this job, I think it was called, I can't remember what it was called, but it was something at Miracle Ranch is where it was housed until one of the boys in the high school rolled the golf cart at the place and then we were asked to leave. But um, but something about Miracle Ranch just made me think it was some kind of a progressive, really cool yeah. thing. And so I interviewed for it and they were excited to have me and the people that were the kind of the founders of this thing because it was the first year that it was going on. It just seemed like a good match. Obviously, I didn't know it was going to entail that, but but it was still a powerful, powerful experience of, that I'm really, really thankful for. Yeah, because it's those experiences that you can then build upon for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You, you talk about uh, college coaching, which seems like it's, a complete 180, but I'm sure there were elements that you brought from that prior experience to this, just in terms of the empathy, compassion, understanding the background and the histories of the players and the athletes and preparing them for bigger, better things than what they were producing in, in practice, preparing them for the game or whatever the case may be, overseas school, the, the whole nine yards. And then you mentioned this mentor, um, this yeah. person that, that fostered you, developed you, trained you into who you are. Do you mind just uh, diving deeper in, into some of that? Uh, yeah. How did you become the person that you are now, today, with the progressive mindset, the, this belief that you can change the way things are being done and that your words do have power? Well, I know there's, the first, that's a lot. <laughs> the, the, first, the first word that comes to mind is accidentally. And, and, mm. I, and even though I took these steps along the way, I mean, I didn't know I was creating a new way of doing teacher observation. I, I, it took me until somebody else said, somebody, one that I had a school said, Craig, I want you to show what you're doing to the other principals. And then one of those other principals, after working with me for a couple months saying, Craig, you need to protect your work. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, this is where you have to. And so really it wasn't until then, but that I maybe realized that there was something that was worth, I mean, I believed in it and I knew it was impactful, but I didn't realize I was, developing something. You didn't realize you were an outlier. You didn't realize like you were one of the only people. Well, no, I mean, I, no, I wouldn't say that because I knew I didn't like the way observations worked. And, and I knew that what I was doing was different and, and, and it was powerful and it really resonated with teachers. And I would see teachers really, really willing to take risks. I just didn't know that it would, <laughs> I mean, I never knew I'd be a principal. So I never knew I'd write a book, you know, just like some, it just, like you make choices, but at the same time, it seems maybe like you're guided. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go yeah. spiritual, but it's, so I don't know. And then, so like back to my mentor, when I remember, even with like a really good principle, the model of like once or twice a year and then giving you the feedback, something about it, even though I appreciated the feedback, wasn't satisfying. And of course, that's a normal teacher response, I suppose, to, to observation. But to me, like, instead of accepting it, just, I, I just felt like something could be better and different. And then I had the, uh, a principal after that for two years, I wasn't observed at all. 
And so then you have that experience at the same time. And then you're like, wow, that's like something really is going on that's crazy. And so then I start my program and the guy that runs the program at Western Washington University up in Bellingham, his name is Warren Aller. We're still dear friends and or we've become dear friends. And I just remember in his class, supervision class, like the first day, he's really passionate. And you know how people talk about doing what's best for kids, but like this man lives doing what's best for kids. And so he just remembered the very first day he was saying, you've got to like be in classes every day and working with teachers and talking to them about their teaching and supporting them and, and building relationships with them and helping them get better. And I was just, I just remember that first day, just having this hallelujah moment that like, because I remember talking to other people about observation and they would say, uh, they would say things like, yeah, yeah, I know, but just like, but that's just the way it is. And then having him, it was like, oh wait, it doesn't necessarily have to be this way. And so I remember asking him like, okay, but how long, how long are you supposed to be in class? And, and he, you know, sometimes like the very best teachers, they don't know the answers because they just, they're just masters and they just do it. And I think it was like that for him. So I kept having to push him and push him and push him. He's like an hour a day, an hour a day. And so he always talked about these 20 minute observations. And so we would practice over and over and over. We'd have to bring 10 minute mini lessons to teach. And then one of us would wait, take turns observing. And then immediately after we'd uh, do a reflective conversation and the reflective conversations then and still in trust-based observations today were anchored by two questions. What were you doing to help students learn? And if you had it to do over again, what if anything might you do differently? And so instantly, if you think about that versus the normal model where we have a pre-conference and then, then I know what you're going to teach and then I give you feedback on the conference and then maybe I tell you something you're good at and then tell you what you should do. It's flipped totally. It's not about me as the observer instantly. Who's it about? It's about you as the teacher. And, and of course it, those questions are setting a message that reflection is a part of practice, but teachers then when I started out going out into the field and doing it, like their responses were amazing. Like teachers that have been teaching 20 years were like, this is the first time anyone's ever asked me about my teaching, which is like, how sad is that? But that's kind of the way the model's been. And so anyway, with Warren, I don't know, it just, he just spoke my language. And then I think it eventually that's really what led to this. Because if I hadn't come across Warren, no way I'd be here right now. No way a book would have been written for sure. So I guess I want to ask you, because the, the book and the mindset, I'm, we're going to dive deep into the, yeah. the, the philosophy behind trust-based observations. But the, the vast majority of people that are listening to this are educators. Yeah. whether they're teachers or administrators. And what you just described is not necessarily their reality. It's not what they experience. They, they, they experience an observation process that is tied to an evaluation process that is tied to a label-making machine that is tied to administrators who believe that they were good in the classroom, so they want to create little versions of themselves. Uh, often, often. How did we get into that cycle? I mean, we talk about best practices and research-based practices. Yeah. John Hattie's work has been blasted all over the, the known world for the last 15 years. We know yeah. that the impact and effect size of feedback, mm -hmm. objective yeah. feedback, and yet we don't implement that in the vast majority of schools. Why? Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you, I did a lot of research as I was starting to write the book and really studying the history of observation. And, and like the clinical supervision model that came out of Harvard, kind of mirroring what uh, doctors do with med students, mm -hmm. that's what it started with. And even back then, those guys were talking uh, about Goldhammer and Kogan. They were talking about worry. They were worried about the duality of using it for evaluation and using it for professional growth growth. And if you look over time, there's repeated and repeated examples of that. And so in my research, and, and look, I can't pinpoint that it says directly this, but it sure seems to be a logical conclusion that in 1983, the report called A Nation at Risk came out, mm -hmm. and it was designed to elicit fear in the public about the state of the education system. Later on, it turns out that really, they played with the data to make it read what they wanted it to read. And what had really happened in the intervening years where maybe we were ranked higher is that so many more students were graduating from high school than before, then it wasn't just the very, very top students that were being tested. It was everyone was being tested. So of course, but the, so you're calling that not a success because maybe your scores have dropped a little bit. Like how is that not, that not a success when all these additional people that weren't graduating from high school are now? And so then shortly after that, like Madeline Hunter had developed, you know, the I, I, mm -hmm. I tip I ready thing. And so she, they started, I mean, I can't, again, I can't say anything that directly says this, but if you look at the timing of it, it seems really, really obvious that right after that, that started to become the evaluation model is her thing and so then in every lesson that happened a teacher had to have all seven of those things and madeline hunter later yeah. says that was never in my intent i've never taught a lesson that has all seven of those things and so then on and on it goes and then no child left behind and you see that and then charlotte danielson her uh indicators right her framework when she originally created that that wasn't about uh, evaluation. It was for teachers to self-assess themselves for their own growth and then somewhere shortly after No Child Left Behind, what happens to it? The same thing, right, that happened with Hunter and then that becomes, and then Marzano's on the bandwagon too and it's just been this increased accountability, accountability, accountability that if we just make it more stringent, more observed, it, people will get better like this left brain mindset when teachers are anything but that if you're throwing it out as a whole. And so, and I think part of the thought, even though it doesn't exactly say this, is that it, worst case scenario, at least we weed out the bad teachers. Mm -hmm. So I think you'd look at that. But then if you look at the Gates Foundation did a seven year, $200 million study trying to develop a, a more robust evaluation process with the goal of increasing the quality of teaching, increasing the quality of learning, and improving graduation rates. And the end results came out late, late 2018. No, no, no real difference. No significance, yeah. Yeah, of significance. And so it's like, it, it's, it started there. I mean, that's my opinion, but it, uh, research is enough to feel pretty confident that that's, that's what's happened. Uh, you know, just that timeline that you just laid out for us. And I know you say you can't, with 100% certainty and accuracy, say that that was the progression. But I think a lot of people that are listening to this right now are thinking, man, that makes so much sense. Far too often in schools, we take these round pegs and try to stick them into a square hole and vice versa. We hear these these things and we, we try to take the fast approach. We're talking grading, for example, the A through F model that was never designed for schools and education that we then used to start sorting and selecting students that we then transferred and said, we're going to start using that to sort and select teachers. And now we use that same broken system to sort and select
schools. Yep. You, you talk about the evaluation model that there has never been any significant research done to say that it has a positive impact the way it's done right now on academic achievement. So we say, well, let's just go harder and stronger on this broken model and we will see better results. And all we do is see bigger divides. We see teacher shortages. We see distrust in the system. And yet we don't just sit back and reflect on, on this and say, huh, maybe it's our system that's broken. Maybe the people are good people doing good work and it's our system that needs to change. And then you walk in and you say, I don't really know what the system's supposed to look like. So let me just kind of do what I think works. And you stumble upon this secret gem, a gem that I, I think we don't focus on enough in schools, the idea of trust, transparency, vulnerability, and truly allowing people to grow, not just hit them over the head with a ruler and say, you're not doing it good enough, you're out. It, it makes so much sense. That's what school is about. We tell people we want lifelong learners, isn't but only to do it my way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right? it's like what's good for the students isn't good for the teachers. Like that makes no yeah. sense. No sense at all. I want to go back to one other thing. There's a, there's a man yeah, named yeah. Matt, Matt O'Leary. And to me, he's the predominant researcher in the world on observation and evaluation. He's out of Great Britain. And he's done all this qualitative research. And basically what he has found is that as soon as we start to evaluatively rate or grade teachers, and it doesn't matter what you call it. And some people say it's a developmental scale, but it doesn't matter. It feels the same. And mm -hmm. it feels that. It's a label. You, you throw a label on someone. Yep. Yeah. And so as soon as you do that, teachers start to play it safe they stop creating, they stop innovating, because frankly, you know, their job's on the line. And so yeah. it's had, so you look at all that, and then you look at teachers, why do we get into teaching? Because, because we want to make a difference in the lives of kids. So all these left brain solutions that have worked their way into legislation now in states all over the country, and that's not how people work. We're like, <laughs> right-brained hard people. I mean, if we're going to throw a big, broad generalization on teachers and like, how do you get the best out of people? It's, it's not rocket science, but it's, boy, but it's, it's been buttoning it, uh, button up against yeah. that for, well, for decades now. For decades. Yeah. So, so let's break this down a little bit. And yeah. it, if you are a, an educator, if you're a teacher right now, I want you to listen to this because I don't want teachers to think that this is something that is done to them. They're, you are a part of this system. You have control, power, and influence on enhancing, changing, and driving this change system. If you're an administrator, I want you to listen to this and say, yeah, you kind of own a big part of this. And there are some things that you can do regardless of what your existing policies and processes are that you can implement for the sake of your teachers for the benefit of your students. So let, let's just kind of break this down a little bit. You know, it's called trust-based observations. Trust-based observations. Yep. The, the major premise is, both parties trust each other, that they're there to grow each other, to learn from each other, be vulnerable and transparent. Is, is there more to it? <laughs> I mean, in a nutshell, that's it. But there's yeah. a lot that goes into it. I mean, trust doesn't just happen, right? It, mm. take, like, it takes a long time to build trust and you can erode trust like immediately with one thing. And that's where I think as principals, we have to be aware of every single thing we say in any situation, every single thing we email in every situation, because I may be great at all the stuff for the observation, but one email with the wrong thing, one statement out in the greater building or whatever, that could erode it just like that too. And so I would say it takes time. And so that's why we say continuous, that we do, tw it's a cycle. It's like, it's a system really. And so we do 12 observations a week. 
three Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and three reflective conversations on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We discovered that the time between Friday and Monday made it not know it work so well. So it's asking for eight hours a week of your time. And if we're talking about what's really gonna impact teaching and learning, then, then that's part of it. I mean, that's where I wanna put my time and effort. And I think there are ways to make it work. And we talk about working with administrative assistants, office managers to, maximize your time so you can get that time to get those eight hours in. So time, because relationships get built in those reflective conversations. And if I'm cycling continually through my teachers, then that's when they're built over time. So that's a part of it. But even then, every single thing we do has to be about building trusting relationships. So when we have the reflective conversation, we do it in the teacher's room. We go into the room because it doesn't matter whether you're six, 16, or 45, going to the principal's office feels like going to the principal's office. But if I'm in your space, you're gonna feel more comfortable and safe right away. And so we go into their room, we ask permission to have the reflective conversation. I've never been turned down. And then even then when we have the reflective conversation, we, at, we sit beside the teacher because again, that face-to-face, -face, there's a power differential and that magnifies that differential. But when we're side by side, that minimizes that differential. So we have an observation template that's a manageable, only nine areas of pedagogy. Do we leave a lot of stuff out by doing that? Absolutely, but the research says anything more than 10 and we start to lose the force through the teach. So it's manageable. And so we go and we start asking those questions. And so we're typing on the keyboard as they write their answers. So we're being as tr transparent as possible with teachers. And then after we've asked the questions and got the answers, what's the next thing we do? We start focusing on strengths. Like what was the evidence? What would I saw? There's no ratings, it's just what I saw. I mean, sometimes you have to reach and just talk about their content knowledge. And, and if that's where somebody is, that's where somebody is, but we can find strengths in anybody. And so when you start new, even if you've been in that building, you're gonna like reset back to zero. And so for at least the first three visits, you're not going to give any suggestions at all. Because one, I'm taking a new look. Two, even if I've been doing it the old way, I haven't been in classes that much, so let's just take time and get to know people and tell our teachers that, we're, look, we're doing it new. I'm starting over. I'm giving everything a fresh look. This is about you guys and supporting you and getting better. And so even then, you'll find that there will be teachers. And this is one of the most amazing discoveries when I first started doing this was I didn't get feedback at first. One, because I felt like it was arrogant as a brand new assistant principal to go in once or twice and get feedback. What if I offered a suggestion and it was something they were really good at? I just didn't see it one of those two times. Like, where's your trust then? Part of it was definitely wanting to be the new guy and be liked and, and the new guy wanting to be liked. But when it ended up happening by waiting at first and just doing that was, and then I think especially because we were asking the questions that made it about them they would say, okay, 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 but what can I get better at? So somehow a light bulb went off that that meant something. And also teachers talked about like when you were sharing their strengths without ratings, like that meant something to them. I mean, you could see they were like, they'd be embarrassed sometimes, but they were glowing just to have you talk about, like I had teachers say like in 20 some years, they'd never had something like this, which is sad. So you do that and then at a certain point along the way and you fill it out, we'll even give it up for a teacher that's been really resistant because of their previous models for a long time. We're playing the long game. I'll give you a whole year of not offering suggestions. I mean, there's exceptions if there's emergencies and safety and all that, of course, but in the long game, if it takes that long, but by year two, okay. I've given you plenty of opportunities to know that I'm here for you. 
and then you just start to know. But so that's the trust part of it. But even more to the trust part about it, as we're doing that, you as an observer, because you're in classes so much, you really start to see who's really good at what, who's my expert at this area of pedagogy or this area of pedagogy or this part of relationships or this part of management or whatever. And so then we start to tap into that with professional development. And so one of the questions that we have is related on the forum is actually related to your action research big goal that the teachers self-determined based on their own because we still have a rubric for the uh, template, but just for teachers. And so then they create a goal. And then for those nine areas, we create professional development communities, which are taught by our in-house experts. So you're empowering your teachers, you're creating that hattie uh, collective teacher efficacy. And then at the end of a year, some teacher that's really embraced that, they'll end up being the person that leads it the next year, right? Well, that other person goes on and does something else. And so it's just, I don't know. I, I, I want to take a pause right now because I, I, I'm glowing right now. People that are watching this right now can see a, like I got a permagrin on my face because I think so much of what you're saying is so spot on necessary and needed. But I'm gonna take a pause now real quick and I, I want to push back thinking. I'm going to try to think yep. through the lens of people that say, okay, this is, this is too radical. You don't understand. <laughs> there, there's just, this, is, this can't happen because. And I, I want you to try to address some of these becauses if it's yep. all, all possible. Yep. You say that you don't give feedback or you don't give evaluative, quantitative, yep. label-making feedback um, all the time. But aren't there some teachers that want to just know their ranking? Aren't there some that just want to play the game? Just like with kids, you can say, "Sure, I want to try to eliminate grades and points, but some kids, they won't do it unless you give them points, right? Won't you get some teachers that, that want to play the game or just blow it off if you don't do that? Well, I, I mean... I haven't had anybody ever ask like for a great, I haven't had that. Although I, I, I take your point and I think it's a fair one. And just like with kids, like we would say to those kids, it's not about learning, but the same thing, whenever we have grades, we're fighting what we really want, the real learning, right? And so look, there, there has, the reality is any job in the world has to have evaluation. There's no question about that. I mean, it's, it's the reality of any job. But if we realize that evaluating the pedagogy is what's getting in the way of people taking chances and making growth. So then we can look at, we can evaluate your professionalism. We can evaluate your collegiality and collaboration. We can evaluate your planning and preparation because those are fair things that any job I think would be a reasonable thing, certainly in education. But instead of that, and the whole system, I hope you can tell from the way it's set up, is really designed to foster growth mindset. I mean, so we're at, they have a goal, and then every month we're talking to them about that goal and how's that going, and we're, pre, we're providing an opportunity for them to work in a group in a professional development community every month to work on improving that goal. And so we, what we've done is we've taken out the pedagogy and we're saying we're going to rate you with mindset, but with the sense that everything we've built into it will equal at least a proficient mindset, unless you're just totally resistant to it, and then that is probably a sign of a bigger problem. So I know I veered off of your answer no, no, you, to that a little bit but i think it you just have to i haven't had that directly but in the long run i would say that because teachers start feeling safe and then because that energy starts to happen in the whole school it just it, it's it takes a pressure off almost yeah and it creates this 
I don't want to sound kumbaya, but it, it, in a way it does create this more positive working together amongst our whole community. And then even if I'm the person that previously, and I understand if I've had this my whole career, how I might want that. But I think when you start to experience the other, it doesn't take too long to change your embrace. I think, so I'm going to give kind of a crude analogy here, but yeah. I, I think it, it, it'll make sense. You keep talking about the long game. Trust is only needed in the long game. And here, here's the crude analogy. Mm -hmm. You go to a bar on a Friday night just to try to, <laughs> to pick somebody up. There's not a whole lot of trust needed. They're not trying to build a relationship. Trust is needed for the long game. And yeah. we need educators right now that are in this for the long game. We have a teacher shortage right now because too many people have played the short game and they've tried to just get that quick win, they, the quick hit, the quick evaluation. You don't have it now. This isn't for you as opposed to saying, no, let's nurture something and grow together. So I, I, your answer, I think, was spot on. It is about that long game, about creating truly career-long learners, lifelong learners that are willing to trust and grow and develop together. Um, so so let, me, let me ask this. Um, yeah. There might be some other administrators that say, okay, but, but you lost me at the time thing. Eight hours a week doesn't sound like a lot in the grand scheme of things. But there are some administrators out there that are that are pulling their hair out trying to figure out how they're going to squeeze 15 minutes out of a day. Yep. So I, I just met with some educators just this week, actually. And we talked through what it means to be an educational leader. And to a person, they all said, well, the role of an educational leader is to be the instructional leader of a school. We've heard that. We, we know that. But yet in schools across America. Yeah, exactly. But in schools, in schools across America, across the world, and across Canada, we talked Michael Fullen here, across the world, Mm -hmm. that we, we say that and it, it almost comes across as pie in the sky because these building administrators, building leaders take so much on that that is the responsibility that they end up abdicating to somebody else. They will then hire on an instructional coach that leads yeah. the instructional rounds and the instructional mm -hmm. supervision and the instructional mm -hmm. growth that they can yeah. focus on facilities and maintenance yeah. and human resources yeah. as opposed to the alternative. What I just heard from your approach though, is that again, with the long game, you're building internal instructional coaches you're building an internal system of professionals that are growing each other in subsequent years that grows exponentially so this first year there's a lot of ownership and intentionality on the administrators but then as this fosters and grows it kind of expands is, is, is that an accurate portrayal of what happens in these schools and systems? i mean yeah i mean i think certainly if we're going to go in and be prepared to uh offer a suggestion or see if they're willing to try something I certainly think we want to be prepared uh, to support them and not just offer it. Like on the observation template, one of the things that I think is a kind of a cool thing is we've actually created for each uh, pedagogical area what we call the toolbox possibilities that list a whole bunch, maybe not an uh, unabridged, but a pretty solid abridged list of strategies that would fall into that category. But then it's, it's a web link. And so that web link goes to all of those different categories and all the different resources that are there, whether that's an article or a book or, or whatever. So we have an opportunity both as a teacher and an observer to use that. And whether, whenever we see that teacher and wherever we think there are, maybe it's putting them with someone that's in our building, but uh, an in-house expert, but maybe it's sending them to a training. So we certainly have to be prepared to offer assistance to somebody and not just say, hey, I want you to get better at this without support. But I think definitely you're building teacher efficacy and you're building in-house experts that 
over, I mean, you know, over theoretically a nine or 10 year thing. And it doesn't mean you couldn't offer an additional professional development community if somebody was really passionate about something and another group wanted to do something because that's certainly possible. But yeah, I mean, it, you still have to put in the time doing the observations. I think that's vital. And it, because that's where the relationship happens and the reflective conversation. One of the other things about the reflective conversation is that so often, I mean, it'll veer off into talking a little bit about your family here and there, right? And that's how the relationship develops. But interestingly, it will start, as they start to feel more comfortable, you'll, you have teachers that have really big, bold ideas, but maybe haven't felt comfortable sharing them, but they'll start to share an idea about the whole school. Mm. Like what if we, and then, so if, if I don't keep doing those visits and keep up with that, I might not learn something that can help my whole school grow too. So, and it's like Michael Fullen in the book, I've got somewhere where he basically says, you either are continually improving relationships or they're deteriorating because staying the same doesn't mean it's improving. Staying the same means it's, so I have to continually do it. And look, basically you were kind of describing before sort of the manager versus the leader, even though we know instructional leader. And we just, we have to look and evaluate ourselves and our actions and determine what are things that I can hand off that are more clerical, managerial. I mean, some of them you have to do, there's no doubt, but there are some of them where you can free up the time to do that. And then I'll say this, as an administrator, as I start to do this, and as I start to feel those relationships develop, and as I see teachers start to embrace taking a big, gigantic risk to flip their practice completely, like that's invigorating to you. And so your enthusiasm to keep doing it builds for sure. No, I, I love that. You know, I think it's I, something that I discovered uh, when, when I was a school-based leader is that often it's our arrogance that gets in the way of, of almost <laughs> everything. It's our arrogance thinking that we know how to teach better than, than teachers. It's also our arrogance thinking that we have to do all the things all the time. And the reality, our job is to grow people into to future leaders, better leaders, better teachers, better educators. Hold on. And there are, there are educators throughout our building, throughout our systems that are clamoring for an opportunity to do something, to do tasks, to do leadership, to do administration, to do things. There are things that you can hand off to people, not just to make your load lighter, but so that you can empower them to grow in their leadership that then frees you up to, to go do some of these other things. It, it, we have to get rid of our own arrogance to help grow people in all walks of life. And, and I think that you are, you're hitting on so many components of leadership uh, and administration just through this lens of observations. Because when you focus on this focus, all other aspects of your leadership journey have to fall in line. This truly does become that priority. I, I'm wondering, do you, when you work with administrators and leaders, do they talk about how this is so transformational to what they do and how it truly transforms their entire day, their entire week, their what I would say is, you know, it's new. The book's only been out eight weeks now, eight weeks today. And sure. so uh, I'm just starting to have conversations with people. But I'm having people like writing me and saying, I've just finished the introduction in chapter one. And I can already tell this is going to transform who I am as a principal. And so I'm starting to get that. And it's funny because, I mean, it's called trust-based observations. And it truly, it provides a guide. But it's it's really it's a school principal leadership book just manifested through to me, what's the, the method that we can have the most powerful impact on improving teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. It's good stuff. Good stuff. So those people that are listening to this and saying, man, you are hitting on some stuff here, Craig. I want to jump in on this. 
How do yeah. they get connected to this? How do they find out more? You know, your, your website is just filled with information. There's, there's the book. Where, where do they hook into this? So uh, the website is www.trustbased.com. Uh, my email is craig at trustbased.com. Feel free, anybody, to email me. Um, my Twitter handle is at trustbasedcraig. I'm pretty new to it, but I'm working hard at growing it. Um, LinkedIn, Craig Randall, I'm on there. Um, the book you can get on Amazon. Uh, I am happy to have a conversation with anybody about this and I'm willing to support. Obviously we provide training and consulting and, and uh, I am truly on a mission to change the way we do teacher observation around the world. So it's truly about improving teaching and learning. And so anybody and, and if you're yeah, into it, yeah, go ahead. I, I, think, I think you are onto it too. You know, I, I get the opportunity to speak to educators across this country and you have not said anything so far that I think violates any existing laws, policies, procedures, protocols of any state out there. You might have evaluation matrices that you have to use. You might have to yeah. do label administrators at the end of a year based off of academic achievement yeah. and growth, yeah. which yeah, that, that kind of stuff happens. You live within that box, but that does now, not preclude you. Now. That does not, yes, yeah, right now, exactly. Yeah. That yeah. does not preclude you. That does not, that does not uh, stop you from going out there and building trust-based relationships that you can grow educators. It doesn't stop you from providing observations, especially if your observations are free from evaluative labels. That's something that you can do outside of the context of whatever evaluation protocol you have to follow. You're just talking about good practice to grow people. I think at, I think at minimum in almost every place around in the country world, I think it's fair that you ought to be able to do the, maybe there's some unions that have limits on that. So the number of, and I'm not quite sure how to get around that. Well, and and some of those limits are based off of bad practice and fear of evaluations and labels. So, <laughs> so if you can start to maybe make some changes or start to do something, even what you're allowed to do when people do that, then maybe you can petition your union to, to allow yeah. more. But I think in almost every sitting, we ought to be able to do every part of trust-based observations, including not rating them every time. If you, if you, for right now, you have to use the old-fashioned system, the, old, the current systems, whatever they are. I get that in my Dated. state. It's, it's outdated. Here. It's outdated. Yeah. But in our, in our state, you have to use Danielson, Marzano, or Self-ID, the University of Washington's mm -hmm. program. I mean, that's it right now. And so it's tough. But I mean... I'll tell you, the last thing in the world I want is to have this be something that only works for private schools, charter schools, and international schools, and then legislations all over the world prevent us from working in public schools where we want to have, make the most difference, like to, where the need is the greatest. And so, I, like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has that book, Tipping Point. And so, like, there are people that will read this or listen to this today, and they're going to be like, oh, oh, my God, this is what I've been waiting for. And I'm not saying that in an arrogant way. I just... I've heard it already. And, and so that's where it starts. And then it's the early adopters after that. And then there's the people that are like, oh, well, I'll go along and get along. And they'll, they'll do it. And, every, and then hopefully at some point we can flip it. I mean, that's my yeah. goal. Yeah. And again, I just want to call to the point of the legislation in all 50 states is tied to evaluation protocols. Yeah. You were talking about observation protocols, which yeah. are not synonymous. They, yeah. they, in a lot of places, we've made them synonymous, but they don't mm -hmm. have to be. If That's you want to grow sad. people, get in there, know them, learn them, grow them, and, uh, and foster those relationships. So good. So, so Craig, I, I told you ahead of time, and, and people that listen to this podcast know that this is coming. 
this is your opportunity. You've, you've dropped a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom for, for a ton of us right here that are, are fascinated. I can only imagine the people that are going to be flocking to buy this book and, and hook up to you. But there might be people listening to this that say, oh, there's so much there. I, what is the thing, the, the thing, the, the truth? What is that mic drop moment that if I'm putting you on a stage in front of all of, all of the world, they're all listening to you talk about educational reform through trust-based observation. What's the thing that you want them to focus in on? <laughs> no <question>. pressure. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. Um, it, I'm not sure how quickly I can boil this down to even to one sentence, but. You're holding the mic, man. Make that sentence a runoff. Go for it. <laughs> Listen. Take care of your teachers. They are our most valuable resource. If you create an environment where you're in classes a lot, you make the reflective conversations about them, ask them questions about their practice, share the strengths that you see with them, you will be amazed at what they will do. For you, for them, it doesn't matter, but what they will do to grow their practice when they feel safe. This is, maybe this is what I would say is, when people trust, when people feel safe, they are more willing to live with uncomfortable feelings of vulnerability and take risks to innovate, be creative, grow their practice. And if you create the right environment, they will persist in that. One of the things that we always tell our teachers, and we have on the, on the observation template, we have, it says risk-taking innovation. It's not even something we really evaluate, we don't evaluate period, but we don't really look for it. It's a reminder for observers to continually remind teachers that if I go into your class and I watch you doing something new and it completely bombs the next day, you can rest assured that you're gonna get a congratulatory fist bump for taking risks. When teachers own that, when they know that is the reality, growth will follow. Boom, there you go. There we Encourage risk-taking. Stop forcing compliance. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love that, I love that. Craig, you are doing amazing things, man. Um, I, I appreciate you taking that risk, uh, leaning into your wife and saying, hey, can you, uh, can you kind of support this for a while? Because I'm going to go change the world. And you took that nod and you took that wink and you said, yep, I'm doing it. And you are doing it. Uh, you are out there doing the things and saying the things that need to be said. You, you're coming on podcasts like this. You are sharing the message from the Pacific Northwest to the Southeast, across America, across the world. And I appreciate that. We need people that are willing to stand up and say, let's try something different. I'm going to model this for you. Let's take a chance. Let's take a risk. And let's see what happens. And I, I think that you are onto something. And I hope that people listening subscribe to what you're putting out there and go out there and they start shaking things up just by leaning into each other, trusting each other, and practicing what we preach. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy, crazy life to share so much knowledge with us today. That's very kind of you to say all those things, Dave. And I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity to hopefully spread the word and start the change. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Lasting Learning. Interested in learning more? Feel free to check out one of my books, like Making Assessment Work, for educators who hate data but love kids, or Bold Humility, or It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime. 
Just visit schmidto.net for more information or feel free to check out Amazon.